This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington. And we're going to talk about the Cowboys today and free agency this week. A little later after that, uh, we're going to uh, talk about the Rangers and uh, their fan policy for opening day. And then we're also going to get to the Mavericks, who have a a big week this week. And we're going to see where we think they might have a chance of ending up in the old West standings. Joining me today, I have uh, David Moore. Hello, David. How are you? Thank you so much, Kevin. Since uh, you and Evan have excluded me for the last uh, month or so, it's uh, it's nice to be welcomed back. I believe we had you like uh, Cool Hand Luke in the box. <laughs> you got my mind right. Like we got your mind right, and that's that's all good. So we we're moving on from that, and then uh, and then our old buddy Evan Grant, who's out in Arizona, and surprise, uh, I am, and I, you know, you just mentioned Cool Hand Luke, and I think this is all going to make a good eventual segment where we will turn things over to producer Jose for about five minutes at the end of every show and let him go down the number of things that we've said that are like extremely old person talk. The kids love cool hand Luke. It's it's a a touchstone of modern popular culture. I'll have you know that I I just saw cool hand Luke listed (laughs) as a movie you have to see. Okay. Uh, It's listed. You know, when things are classics, you know, people go to art museums, you know, and they still see Van Gogh's, you know. Yeah. But Kevin, the only magazine you read now is like AARP monthly. So no, I canceled my subscription. (laughs) That's out. I don't, I don't take that anymore. You know, the only subscription I take, I take two Texas monthly. For my old pal Skip Hollinsworth, and uh, um, what is the other one? The New Yorker. I always take the, I've always taken the New Yorker. I love that. So anyway, so that's that's that. I don't even take Sports Illustrated anymore. You know, it's, it's just not the same. What happened to your Saturday Evening Post subscription? You know, ever since uh, Norman Rockwell died, I just it's just not the same for me. You know, I, I, I loved how he could just really dial it up uh he, he was terrific so the umpires on the mound during the rain delay yeah, there's, there's... that's that's a classic that was in yeah. the restroom at the old ballpark remember that <laughs> yeah oh, it was, man that was Come that on. was the artwork in the old ballpark that 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 really really snaps the place up a lot oh yeah it struck at the heart well you know the whole thing the whole hee-haw theme uh, going there so Get another updated reference yes Thank another you. one exactly well that's all the only ones i have uh so anyway <laughs> Jose, um, this is going to be gold for you later on yeah i could talk about chicago pd if well, y'all want me to like there's this whole gap from 1962 to now <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well there is in my in my head there is um uh, but you know we'll talk about that later <laughs> the, uh, when we get to the nursing home stage of this uh, podcast so david it's, it's a big week in free agency uh the patriots have apparently <laughs> spent about 
four billion dollars on free agency this week, including the signing of my old pal Hunter Henry from Arkansas. Uh, whose career has kind of been derailed, uh, frankly, by injuries, but uh, but a really good player, uh, and, and no surprise that uh, Bill Belichick would want to go out and find himself the best tight end possible, considering how that position has figured in his offense so many years. But what we have seen from the Cowboys so far is uh, a lot of uh, over the last few years is a. A lot of guys who, who didn't really stir the imagination much when the Cowboys signed them. And then they didn't stir the imagination much after they signed them either, you know. And many of them didn't even stir their way till the end of training camp. Yeah. Ha ha, Clinton Dix, we'll see you later. Um, and last year in particular, I, I guess it all came to a head last year because those, those guys that they signed really made little to no impact. And, uh, and some of them didn't even make the entire season, as you said, the three that I can think of off the top of my head. So what we know that the Cowboys idea is that we're going to make some low level signings here that will enable us. We're going to fill a few holes and that will enable us to draft what we want. That certainly has been what happened. They did make these low level signings. They did draft the guys they wanted to draft. So I guess it does serve its purpose in a way because it gets the Cowboys to do the right things uh, as far as the draft goes. But then it doesn't play out that way during the season. Yeah, and I don't want to, I don't want to live in the past here like we did in our opening. But let, let's go back to 2012 real quick, and that was, that was a large class. That was when they were moving into the new stadium and had that money, and they spent uh, the, their their primary signing that year was Brandon Carr. Now I would argue Brandon Carr was a very good player for a very long time here. But the perception was because he got $50 million, he did not rise to the level of what expectations were. So he was considered a bust. He was far from a bust in my mind. But the, the idea that you overspend in the first few days of free agency to get uh, who you want has borne out over time. I mean, you're overpaying dramatically at the start of the market to get these players in. And so really, since in my mind, 2012, and you look at the classes, there's been a distinct drop really from that point on. What the Cowboys have done is they've laid out on the first one, two days of free agency, many times the first week of free agency, and then said, okay, now let's start to pick around the edges. Let's see where the values are. Uh, let's go bargain shopping here. And in recent years, while they've done that to cover themselves in the draft so they can draft more purely, what has happened is they've made some really bad choices in free agency. Uh, you, you, know, you mentioned last year. We, uh, it's not much different in the years before, but just go real quick. Last year from this period, uh, you know, ha-ha Clinton Dix, safety, didn't make it to the regular season. Gerald McCoy didn't make it past the first day of training camp. Maurice Kennedy, the cornerback, chose to opt out for COVID concerns last year. You know, the only players they got in that first wave that did anything were Blake Bell, who, who did a nice job in the limited role he had at tight end, and Greg Zerline, their kicker. You know, right after the first wave, they signed Don Terry Poe, out of shape, cut during the season. Everson Griffin, he went. Uh, Worley was another guy they signed. He was gone. So – Bargain shopping is fine if it allows you to stay on your draft board 
and they've done very well in drafting by and large, but they've really gotten no benefit from who they picked in free agency. So my stance is rather than waiting until that third or fourth phase of free agency to start picking guys, I would say, why don't you jump in on that second phase, into the second phase, top of the third phase, where you have a little more quality options to go with, spend your money there, get fewer guys, especially this year when you have four compensatory picks to add. And I certainly know Evan agrees with this. I just don't understand why it's got to be one or the other. Certainly, I would think that you could jump in and target one real need that's experienced and tested and go after that guy and then do some bargain hunting. I I don't see why it has to be just one or the other. And as a guy who, quite frankly, doesn't understand a ton about NFL free agency, I look at, well, I I look at it this way. If if Bill Belichick and the Patriots are going to jump in and do it, it's probably not a bad strategy. And the Cowboys just have seemed to be, they have seemed to kind of lay out on free agency really for as long as I can remember in terms of going out and and really being aggressive with an early signing. You know, really you go back, uh, like I said, 2012, I would argue really the only high profile signing in free agency they've had since then was several years later when they went with Greg Hardy. Now that one was, and I can tell you right now, there was obviously baggage that went with that and he was under suspension at the time he was signed and he had to serve that. But even in that case, the Cowboys, the front office in justifying that move, they were enamored with the contract, not the player. All I heard consistently was, look, the way this contract is structured, if he flames out, if we don't get anything, it's really not punitive at all. It doesn't hurt us. Uh, You know, big, Big uh, risk-reward ratio. This is a big reward potential and very little risk. So this is, regardless of how it turns out, this is such a good move, such a good move. You know what? I want the front office to fall in love with the player, not the contract. And I think too often over these last six years in free agency, the Cowboys have fallen in love with the contract, not the player. And so, Evan, I agree with you. I, I I think a balance needs to be found there. And uh, I I think this is a year to do it because I think because the cap actually went down this year rather than go up as it has incrementally over the last 10 years, um, you know, you're seeing a drop of 10 million. Usually you're seeing an increase of 12 million. There are going to be a lot of quality veteran starters on the street. And why wait, you know, two weeks from now, you can identify some of those players right now and make a run at them now. And uh, if you hit on one and you're spending a little more than you wanted to spend for them, guess what? The Cowboys can find the money to restructure some contracts to still be in there. And very quickly, where they are on the cap at the moment, they have roughly 17 to 17.5 million to spend. And you can say, well, that's plenty. Well, remember, they have the four additional draft picks, and that also includes signing draft picks. So when you look at the rookie pool, take another eight to nine million out of that. So what you're really looking at is they have anywhere from eight to nine million right now at this moment to spend on this year in free agency. But like I said, they're positioned where if there's a player out there that piques their interest, 
they can go ahead and restructure, push that money two years down the road when all the TV money hits and you can absorb it on the cap and go ahead and make those moves. So if we look at uh, some of the guys that they could uh, have uh, or they could pursue and they still could pursue, but but some are gone. And we just see where the, uh, as we're taping this, that uh, Chidobe Ouzie has been signed by the Bengals. So I don't think he was really in the Cowboys He was not going to come back. Yeah. No. And, and the first part we should say on all this is retaining your own free agents. He was not a, he is now the third guy they've lost. They've lost Cam Irving, the swing tackle, linebacker Joe Thomas, and now Chidabe Awuzia. Uh, none of those players were on the list of, of free agents that Dallas wanted to retain. And I think we should take one moment here because, Kevin, you really liked saying Chidobe Awuzie's name. Well, let's, let's, let's acknowledge that. Who does it? Sometimes at night when I can't go to sleep, I just say that over and over again. So that's, so I know anyway, that's a bad loss for you. I, I mean, it is. It's, it's not as good as, as if we had, you know, Giannis uh, and Tedekumpo. You know, that that was I call him Greek freak, I think. Yeah, the Greek freak. Uh, So uh, but let's look to me. And and this is right. We need to fix the Cowboys. And this is how we fix them. We tell them what to do Uh, (laughs) because they do listen to us. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Jerry loves to listen to us. Is that uh, in this draft in particular, this is a draft pretty much devoid of top end defensive linemen there. Defensive tackles, especially. Yeah, but also edge rushers, too. But I would say. They're crying need at defensive tackle. There's not much there. And there isn't much this year. Yes. And, and, and from what I can tell, if you look at mock drafts and I, and I look at a lot of them is that there might not be a defensive tackle taken until the second or third round. And my, in the defensive line, unless a guy is a, one of the Bosa brothers, you know, or chase young, it is very difficult to get a defensive end who comes out in that first year and makes a real impact. It just, takes some time for those guys so in the defensive line in particular this to me is where i would invest money in a free agent especially this year that's what i'd be trying to do that or at safety and and we just saw that the that the brown signed the ram safety john johnson very well respected and, and only i think 25 years old that was three years 33 million dollars i don't know how that was constructed i don't know if it was you know 11 a year or not on the cap that would have been prohibitive for the for the Cowboys to do that and still do the other things that they want to do. So to the point of what level of player are we talking about here? I think that John Johnson was one of the upper end free uh, agent safeties that could have been available to the Cowboys. They weren't willing to, to do that kind of thing. We know what they think of safeties in the first place. There's a lot of discussion about Maybe that, you know, since Dan Quinn's coming in as a new defensive coordinator from Atlanta and he brings one of the – his safeties that he had there, that he had two safeties there that, uh, that might be available. These are, these are guys that would be familiar to him. He knows what they can do. We know how coaches like to go back to guys that they're familiar with. That they're familiar maybe, to Evan because I believe those two safeties were on the field during the Super Bowl against New England in the second half. Listen, you guys think the Cowboys have had bad issues with safety. <laughs> I don't think the Falcons have had a good safety since Tom Pridemore retired in 1982. So I never feel like going and poaching Falcons talent is a, uh, <laughs> a, a, a good strategy. Is a, yeah, it's a real smart strategy these days. <laughs> but no, Kevin, I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, Keanu Neal is, is a guy who is a high draft pick who is flashed. First rounder. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he's available. He's 26. Now he has an injury history, which is why he's on the free agent market. Atlanta wasn't real interested in retaining him. 
Uh, you have Kazee, their other safety, who's going to be out there, who's also had some injury issues. Those are two guys to keep in mind. You know, a guy like Malik Hooker, he's coming off a, a, an Achilles injury. So some of the better Never safeties good. have. You know, other guys like Trey Boston, is a, uh, he's a hired gun. But I tell you what, he goes somewhere, and for one year he plays really well, and then he winds up somewhere else the next year. The Cowboys are going to have to address the position in the draft with someone who can stick. I, I believe they're going to start to do that now with Dan Quinn, where they haven't before. But you're still going to need that player that's going to get you through a year or two. They hoped ha-ha Clinton Dix would do that. Uh, he was unable to do that. But safety's at one position. You know, to, to me, nose tackles the other. I just think they have a crying need there. And, and really, we talk about this. We're talking about up the middle. You know, we're talking about defensive tackle and safety, and we're talking about the run issues. You know, a guy who was out of their price zone, but they had an interest in was Dalvin Tomlinson, uh, the Giants defensive tackle. Uh, you know, he signed in that first day. So now you go down to that next level. Talk about a hired gun, and he's done this for about four or five years now. And I think he's been outstanding everywhere he's gone is in Dominican Sioux. And he's in the same position. Went to Tampa Bay for one year. They won the title. And, and now he's a free agent. And they, you know, the Bucks have signed a lot of players. They have not re-signed him yet. So he's another guy who, and, and you know, maybe that's his shelf life. <laughs> you know, you know, maybe he only really fits into an organization for a year or two. And, and then you move on at this stage for how he approaches it. So the, the, those are some names to keep in mind. And, you know, we, we haven't even talked about linebacker yet or defensive end where you were talking about pass rushers. Alden Smith is a guy who they brought in here last year who's, who had a good start, tailed off at the end. Uh, I think we'll get some interest from other clubs, but I think is more inclined to come here, as, as Evan will tell you. Evan, Evan tells us all kinds of things and we don't believe him half the times. It doesn't really matter. Well, no, I do think you will believe me on this because, you know, the minute the Dominican Sue's name gets mentioned, I think both you and I, our little ears prick up partly because we thought he was going to be the greatest player in the history of NFL defense during that, that big 12 championship game that we saw against Texas. And I, I fully agree. I, I, you know, there's, there's some bona fides there and I don't think he's got, the same reputation that he once had as a really dirty player. I think he has become kind of a, a hired gun and a really good hired gun at that. And I, that would be a guy that I'd be targeting right now to try and solve this, the defensive line issues. He's a guy that I think I've seen where you might be able to get him for $5 million, uh, a year, which certainly would fit better in the Cowboys cap uh, situation in a short-term deal. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'd be for that. So we've talked about so far uh, the Cowboys uh, free agency plans here. I want to also talk about the impact that Dan Quinn is going to make on this because that came up last week. And we're, we're going to a little bit later talk about the Rangers on opening day and letting all the fans in and stuffing the place with fans. And then also the Mavericks in their climb up the West ladder. But the thing that was struck me last week at that press conference, which was kind of a surreal kind of thing, David, I know that, uh, and you wrote about this. It's always fun to, to get Jerry out and get him talking. We, I missed me to, some Jerry Jones. Yeah, I know you did. You wrote about that. You know, we used to see that all the time, right? I mean, in the early days, 
Jerry was around all the time. We saw it more than we wanted. Yeah. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, yes, we did. But one of the things they talked about was the impact of Dan Quinn and what the, the, they expect him to be able to do on this defense. So I wanted to ask you, David, when they talk about this, obviously he was not available last year when they hired Mike Nolan for Mike McCarthy's first staff. Was Mike Nolan like, okay, well, we'll take Mike Nolan. We'd really love to have a guy like Dan Quinn. Uh, and because obviously that went terribly wrong uh, last year with that defense. Uh, you, you don't get fired after one year very often uh, unless something terribly wrong happened. And uh, I, I want to know how much impact do you think that Dan Quinn can make here? I mean, what, what is the realistic thing to hope here? They screwed up so royally with Mike Nolan. Why is it that Dan Quinn is going to be such an upgrade? Well, several things there. I, I think, you know, we probably don't pay enough attention or talk enough about the fact that, look, all of these head coaches, especially ones who have been in the league for a while, have a group or cadre of coaches they want to bring along with them and really have an order to them, just like they would have a depth chart. But they're not able to get everyone they want because of contractual obligations elsewhere. So you never truly know who their first choice is. And, and they're not going to tell you that because they have so many close relationships, you know, throughout the community. But Mike Nolan was a linebackers coach who hadn't been a defensive coordinator in eight years, nine years when he took over. I think it's pretty clear he was not uh, Mike McCarthy's top choice or anyone else at this stage. You know, he, he had kind of gone into a different phase of his career. But you have a trust with him. Mike Nolan gave. Mike McCarthy, his first full-time job in the NFL. So you, you had that attachment and you went, you know what? I, I trust him uh, conceptually. He runs the sort of defense I want. So I know we're on the page there. Uh, let's bring him in here. Let's make it work. Now we've talked before and there's no need to go down this rabbit hole too much that a uh, huge miscalculation because what did McCarthy do offensively? Came in, looked at the offense that was in place and said, you know what? This is working at a pretty high level. Continuity cannot be understated in, in its importance. So I will add some wrinkles to it and changes, but I'm not going to come in and, and tear this up and implement my system. Uh, let's keep the system that's working pretty well offensively and just add to it and evolve as we go forward. He looked at the defense and went, no, nah, we can change the defense. And, and why do you do that? It gets back to a I would argue an organizational bias that this organization has toward offense over defense. Offense is skill. Offense is coordination. And offense is sophisticated. Defense, you know what? Yeah, you want talent, but you can make up for a lot with talent, which is motor and want to and drive and desire on defense. And we'll do it that way. This team has done that for a long time. They did it with Rod Marinelli as the defensive coordinator. And now they're leaning on Dan Quinn to say, you know what? We know we don't spend the money on defense that we do on offense, but defense is about attitude. It's about culture. It's about coordination. You can bring that. You can do that. You can bring these guys together. And, and Quinn does have a record of doing that. Players who played for him love playing for him. He was part of those early Seattle defenses that won the Super Bowl and went back to the Super Bowl. You know, it's interesting. Atlanta was a more offensive club, but they came up defensively. To wrap it all up, what he can do, this team was so bad last year. They were at the bottom of defense. If you can get up to around the 20 level on defense, 20 to 22 overall defensively, be better against the run, 
I think that's going to be a dramatic rise and put you in a position where you're not a drag on the success of the team. But I would anticipate it's a, it's a two-step process minimum that you try to get up to respectability and then move into the top third two years down the road. We will be talking more about free agency next week as you go kind of into that second phase and the, and the Cowboys and what they do. And, and as well, I want to also, uh, you know, in the coming weeks, talk about some of the issues on defense. I think that uh, we, we've gotten a little a whiff of as a lack of leadership over on that side and, and some of the things that Leighton Vander Esch has kind of hinted about and talking about. And I'm interested to see how much of that factored into some of the free agents the Cowboys are letting go. But right now we want to get over and talk about the Rangers and opening day. And we're also going to talk about the Mavericks and their climb up the West ladder. Evan, you know, they've cleared the gates. They're, they're going to expecting a full house. The Rangers are leading the league. They're leading MLB in, in one category this year. And it's going to be fans. That's, that's going to be my prediction. I'm not so sure they'll lead the league in fans, but they are going to lead the league in occupancy rate. The difference is you can open it to 100% of fans. It's whether or not they come. And after the first week of games, I don't know how many people are going to come and watch the Rangers. They are the only team so far to announce opening above 40% capacity. Colorado is second. They have announced that they would open to 21,000, and they're able to do that based on a variance that the, the governor of the state of Colorado allowed them. What the Rangers are doing is they are taking advantage of the government policy and saying that that's simply good enough for them and that they will very, I don't even want to use the word strenuously, but they will, they will very aggressively um, ask for voluntary compliance of their mask mandate. And if that sentence sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook, that's exactly what it is. Because when they say a mask mandate, there shouldn't be any words along the lines of voluntary compliance. It should be, in that regard, kind of a no tolerance situation. And when I asked for an explanation on this, I was told, well, it's more going to be like a three strike policy in which ushers will tell fans, you know, warn them once if their masks have drooped. They've got droopy mask syndrome. Uh, They may warn them a second time. And then on the third time, they may be asked to leave. Now, I don't have any idea how exactly that will be handled if you will ask a 68 or 69-year-old retiree who's taken a job as an usher at Globe Life Field simply because they want to be out at the ballpark to get in the face of a fan who may have had three or four beers and who is being unruly and decides to cite the governor's state policy as opposed to the business policy in their reason for why they're going maskless and they're not going to change. So I, I think that there is the conditions are right for some things to go very, very wrong here at the ballpark. But I would just say this before I ask David to weigh in on this. And that is as much as I've thought about this and as much as I've given it consideration, I feel like the Rangers have What they have done is in addition to wanting to make as much money as possible, they have reached out to their fans and they have a good idea of the demographic and the the desires of their fans. And I don't think that their attendance is going to suffer because fans are not going to go simply because of the mask policy. I think there's a lot of people who are just ready to go to baseball games and who are Rangers fans and who will, who may go just to basically say, we're going to show everybody that we can go out and live our lives now and that nobody's going to stand in the way. David, what do you think about that? 
there's a lot to unpack there. First, the idea of 68-year-old retirees with their Google spreadsheets putting the number of warnings they have for everybody and then enforcing the rules that the rangers are kind of taking a passive approach to enforcing, I find comical. We can start more about. But uh, but I guess what I'm struck with, you know, this is so far above what any other team in Major League Baseball is doing to start this season. Uh, and we can talk about the Astros, too. I think they have a much different policy, and they're in state. So that's a, that's a comp, uh, you know, that you still have the same cultural idea within the state. But how much of this is making up for lost time, uh, the, the money that was lost last year going into a new stadium that not other teams encountered and just saying, and, and one, you can look at it from the crash standpoint of that, but there is an obligation to make it up to the fans who paid for that season, who missed out on that experience. And if they all say they're willing to take this risk and come back, how do you balance that against the public health and, and your obligations in that regard? And, and just, and I think I know which side is winning out here, but I mean, what are the factors there? How do you see those being weighed? Well, I think to one point, you know, there's this level of contract fulfillment that the Rangers put themselves in. Last year, they didn't, they asked people to roll over their money into 2021 and a number of people had bought season ticket packages based on the idea that it was going to include opening day and the grand opening of Globe Life Field, and they rolled over their money. And so now you've got the, you, you may have fifteen or 18,000 season ticket equivalencies, but you've got any number of partial packages that include opening day that you've got to at least fulfill and say, here, the opportunity is there for you to go to opening day. So on that front, they're trying to at least fulfill their contract. The second element of it is that I, I think if you take the Rangers and the Astros situation in particular, from a business standpoint, I don't know that there's a ton that the Astros can gain by going to 100% on opening day, where that if they go 50%, and I don't think the Astros have announced their full policy yet, but if they were to go 50% on opening day uh, in April and May and in June, go to 100%, you know, with the idea that they would be able to stay at 100% the rest of the year, the Astros would get close to 100% capacity because they're going to be a contender. They've got a winning track record over the last few years. They've got a good team. The Rangers, on the other hand, if they're marketing this team to try and get the most they can out of ticket sales, it's all got to be jammed into the first month when the novelty is the stadium, when the team, which is clearly in a rebuild mold, doesn't have an awful, awful record at that point in time. And so if you were to open at 50% and then go to 100%, you'd never get 100%. You might get 100% for opening day and for that first homestand and maybe that first month of the season. And then you might draw some better crowds as you get into the summer months and, and schools are out and you've had some time to, to do some advanced group sales and things like that. But I, I think from a business model, the Rangers almost have to operate in inverse proportion to the other team in the state and a lot of the other teams around the country. I think they have terribly miscalculated if they do not think that they will draw big crowds all year long. I, I think, you know, having grown up in Houston and saw the Astrodome, and that was a different animal. That was the first indoor stadium. But for years, the Astros just drew on that. Uh, people coming from around the world to go to those games. That's not happening now. But I, I think that, you know, one of the reasons that why they, they built this was because – 
we expect uh, to give this a big boost here. We, we expect that in the summer, as it, when it gets hot, you can actually go to those games now. You couldn't go to those games in July and August. And I think they will get more than what they have in the past just because of that. I don't even, I, I don't think it, this first year in particular, I don't even think it even really matters how much, how good the team is. Well, let me just, let me just interject there that the policy right now, and again, this is only April and May, has, or only March and April, the two exhibition games in March and, and April have been determined, but the policy at this point in time is to play with the roof open at all times with the exception of impending rain. So you could get to June and July and 100 degree temperatures out there and they're keeping the roof open if they adhere to that policy. I don't think they will, because I think at that point in time, they will cite their state-of-the-art ventilation system and that the numbers have continued to go down. But right now, the stated policy is all games will be played with the roof open unless weather in the form of rain dictates otherwise. I just feel like I get what you're saying, Kevin, on the Astros and, and what they did in the past and how they drew and that this the novelty of the stadium should be a draw. But I do think that our world has changed, and this may appeal to 75% of the Rangers fan base, but I think that there's 25% of the fan base that is going to say, you know what, I'm just out until this whole pandemic has passed. And so I think it will have some degree of impact on attendance. What? I don't know. But it's also, people are also going to have to weigh, am I going to go pay a lot of money to go see a bad team? I think that, you know, those are factors. I think the, the big thing for me will be to see just what the numbers are and how they spike, you mm -hmm. know, uh, the COVID numbers. Do we have another resurgence? I mean, you know, the, this is certainly talk about a super spreader event or the potential for it. If you've got 40,000 people in there and, and we've seen uh, what's happened, whether it's in a church or any kind of uh, group setting where people are singing or yelling, I, I would imagine they're even going to be yelling at the, at the Rangers game, no matter how bad they're going to be. And, you know, to, to the point about whether they're wearing their mask or not, as we all know, it's like if you go to a restaurant, you got to take that mask off to eat. And people are eating constantly at ballpark games. You know, that, that's the whole idea. And drinking idea. constantly. Eating and drinking constantly. That, that's that's to, to what me, they that's, say. That's going to be, oh, again. But one, though, we know that Arlington has great cross ventilation because Jerry Jones told us that in opening the roof at AT&T Stadium uh, during the season when they led the, sure. led the NFL in pandemic uh, attendance really led all the sports far and away in pandemic attendance. But to me, and look, this is just where we are culturally too. And this is where uh, there, there are going to be people who challenge this because of what we just said, you get three strikes. So like, okay, well, two of the strikes were valid, but I was drinking in that third one when they tossed me out, or I was, I was about to put that hot dog in my mouth, right. When they said, you know, and we've already seen it. People want to make statements on this. And if you have a full stadium with people drinking who are already inclined to want to make a cultural statement, uh, I just think, you know, we talk about a super spreader event from the virus standpoint with the nebulous guidelines, which aren't really rules that are in place. Uh, this could really be fertile ground for just a, a, a constant aggravation for fans who go to games uh, with these incidents, incidents throughout every game out there for a while. Hopefully it doesn't get that. Hopefully we work through that stage. But uh, it's hard for me to envision that it won't be that way for a while in the stands. We should say this, that I would expect that 
upwards of 90% of fans who go to games will be very respectful of what the mandate and what the request is. No question. And that's not my concern. There's a lot of people who want to get out and who are willing to do what they feel is necessary in order to get out and be proactive in terms of protection. It's, it's, you know, if you've got 40,000 people in the stadium and you've got 10% of that group that basically is flipping everybody off and saying, I'm going to flaunt what, what my rights are and my quote unquote freedoms, that's still a lot of people that could potentially create some issues there. And beyond the super spreader idea, you know, again, the thing that worries me is if I'm the Rangers, you're nationally, you're getting tarred and feathered for this. And you don't care so much about nationally, because again, you care about your ticket buying audience. And I get that, but take spikes and resurgences and super spreaders out of it. If you get a situation where you get a couple of unruly fans and they get physical in a confrontation with an usher or a police officer who's trying to escort them out of the park or ask them to leave, you know that's going to get filmed and you know that's going to go on social and you know that's going to become a story. And so is whatever increased revenue you're going to get, is that worth the blowback that you will get you know, nationally on your brand? And I don't have an answer for that. Well, we saw that just the other day in the, uh, I believe it was in the Atlantic 10 conference basketball tournament where a guy was working for one of the teams and was actually filming something. And, uh, and they were told though, not to let the security guard were told not to let anybody down on the floor. And this guy got down on the floor and the security guard got him in a headlock. And that's the visual image from that, you know, is this security guard got this guy in a headlock and, and he worked for one of the teams. So uh, you can imagine what it would be like if uh, it, it is, I've been mentioned in these situations when you've gotten fans involved uh, and, and they've had two or three or nine beers and we'll, we'll see what develops from all that. So I, I think there are a lot of things here uh, that the Rangers have to be very careful about and monitor and they, they better take good notes from the opener and see what happens going forward. So what happens we, when that's a 65 year old woman. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's exactly I, right. Hey, th- these are very real possibilities based on <laughs> what we've seen and what we know. And that's it. When you have that many people together, you're going to have more visual evidence of it. It's going to take on a greater weight. I, I agree with Evan that 10%, it may only be 5%, it may only be 4%. But if you have a full stadium, 4% of a full stadium, that's a lot of potential fires to put out. Yeah, it is. All right. We've talked about Cowboys and free agency and a little bit about Dan Quinn's impact uh, as defensive coordinator. We've talked about the, the Rangers shoehorning in a, a full house. And what we hope is that the uh, last stages of the coronavirus in America. And now we're going to talk a little bit about the Mavericks. Uh, Monday night, they uh, played and lost to the Clippers. The game got pretty close there at the end got a little exciting got it down to four points and then uh then Kawhi Leonard does what Kawhi Leonard does uh you know he just pretty much overpowered the Mavericks I thought the the key was he pretty much he came down the floor every time and the play was going through him it's pretty much like the Mavericks do with Luka Doncic uh and there was a play late where Paul George goes up for a, a layup good defense it's blocked and Tim Hardaway is trying to get the rebound and essentially, Kawhi Leonard ate him and got the ball, went up for the shot, got fouled. It's a three-point play. And then at that point, the game was over. I just think that it wasn't so much what exactly 
happen from a statistical standpoint. It's what happened from a metaphorical standpoint that this guy is just too good for us. We, we can't do anything against him. So, you know, the Clippers are obviously one of the four teams uh, in the top of the, uh, the West standings and one of the four best teams in basketball. And they're probably, they're, they've been playing until Monday night. They've been playing very poorly. The Mavericks are going to play them again Wednesday night. We'll see what they can do in that situation. But right now, David, they are the eighth seed, uh, the Mavericks. Uh, the Spurs are in front of them at seven. How high do you think the Mavericks can climb? And what is realistic for them? And how much should they try to do before the trade deadline to try to make that rise a little faster and higher. I'll take the last one first. I, I don't know the way this season has unfolded. When you look at the potential ceiling that a major trade would give you this year, I don't know that it's going, uh, unless you feel it's something that's absolutely right going forward. And this is how you want to structure the team, but I, I would not make a trade. That's just going to allow me to be a little more competitive this year because the way this season has been truncated, the way you missed even more time early because of the players you had with coronavirus, uh, the lack of practice time to play together and really get a feel for how this works. And, and we haven't even touched on the part that this was a, a pretty significant shift in how they were playing this year from a pace uh, to be a more balanced team, to be better defensively. I, I would say you take this year and you play it all out to see if, if these which pieces are fits going forward. I just don't know that in a season that has been unsettled as this one for the Mavericks, as far as getting a rotation and for all of the players to have a feel for each other, I don't know that I would pull the trigger on anything significant saying, you know what, I, I want to jump up. If we make this move, we're going to jump up to four this year. So let's, let's do that because I, again, I don't know that they have enough time anyway. And if you bring someone in right now, that's going to take even more time to reacquaint and get a rhythm going. So I would really lay out on that. I, I would play this year out and see how this fits, because I think you're starting to see some signs defensively that they're playing better as a unit, but you still need to get a feel of, okay, where is the balance? Because this is an exceptional offensive team and how much are you going to give up offensively, but your defensive strides have to come to a point where it, it helps you in the postseason. I, I just don't know that the way this season has played out, they can do that. And, and here's the other thing. I, I would put all this against the backdrop of, I think this is a very awkward and frustrating time for a lot of Mavericks fans. And this, this is normal in the development of a transcendental player, which is Luka Doncic is, that people are already projecting Doncic to what he can be and what he will be and where he could take this franchise. But emotionally you're attached to that rather than the reality of the moment which is they have a lot of heavy lifting to do to get to that point even as great as Doncic is just go back through the history of this guy I mean everyone looks at Michael Jordan and talks about him being a transcendental player he certainly was well he was in the league for seven years before they won a title but his his legacy is from that point forward but it takes time to get there. And, and there's so many teams that are stacked and, you know, so much talent in the West. Uh, Dallas isn't ready to compete with them this year or really, in my mind, next year. 
but this is that danger period where I think fans and, and some players can get too down on where the team is. So I, this is something they have to work through, but eight's a difficult spot. I, I think it's going to be hard for them to rise much above six. Now suddenly you're saying, okay, well, they didn't even finish as good as they did last year. Now let's see what they do in the first round of the playoffs. It's going to be how they compete in the first round of the playoffs, in my mind, not where they finish, because I don't know that they can get much up. I guess potentially they could get to five, but it's hard to see them moving past that. And I think that's that's really the outer edge. Yeah, I think I think five is, you know, the Nuggets are, are fifth right now, and they are two and a half back of the, of the Nuggets. They had the season series edge over Denver for whatever reason. They've done a good job uh, against them. And Jamal Murray, uh, they, they defended him well and kind of taken him out of what uh, uh, his comfort zone, Josh Richardson's defense has, has been a difference maker lately. For me, the problem with the Mavs this year was how they were impacted by COVID and uh, probably as much or more so than any other team in the league. And they, they lost guys for an extended period of time and lost over almost half of the rotation for an extended period of time. And it just took them too long to come back from that for a, for a team that was still trying to to gel. You know, you, you they'd added Josh Richardson and, of course, Chris Porzingis is still trying to come back from his surgery. And so you're, you're trying to get chemistry developed there and all that's been removed. Uh, and so now we are starting to see that now, but that was the, been the problem here in, the, in, in talking about making a trade before the deadline. There are players available. There, there are guys that they can make deals work, but because of the salary structure of the guys who are available, these are guys making $27, $28 million. It would require the Mavericks to give up several players from their rotation just to make the money work. And do you really want to give up three or four guys from the rotation to get one guy? Let's take a Victor Oladipo from Houston, who, who is available. Yes, he's a, he's a scorer. He would be an upgrade for the Mavericks. He would give them something close to that third wheel, that third star, and maybe even a second one over what Porzingis is doing right now. But you end up giving up so much, and now you're trying to adjust to a new guy in, the, in, a, in a run here. How effective is he going to be? And Oladipo contract is up after this season. And a guy who needs the ball in his hands. At least he has throughout his career more so than than what you have with other players in there now. So how does that square uh, with Luka Doncic? So, yeah, you know, you, you mentioned Kawhi Leonard earlier, and, and it's interesting because everything at the end of games runs through Kawhi, but not the rest of the games. And right. you talk about everything now runs through Luka when he's out there. And, and it should. He's younger. He's at a different stage of his career. You know, all of that makes sense now, but the Mavericks need to strike that balance of, you know, do we find a player here that, that takes it out of his hands some and how does he adapt or in doing that, does it just diminish us too much? And we don't want to do that. So that's a, that's another thing they have to work through, but I, I think that's pretty far down the list. I think they want the ball in his hands and everything to run through him uh, right now. It, it's hard to argue with that. And in some ways, that does make it easier, I think, to, to find complementary pieces because you know this is going to run through him. Now, six or seven years from now, they're going to say, you know what? We can't run all the offense through Doncic. We're going to have to spell him. We're going to have to run offense to give him a break at, at other you know, parts of the game. But at this stage of his career, this age, that's not really a concern. So to me, that makes it a little bit simpler to put a, a team around him. But with just where they are, 
with Porzingis coming back off this major injury and, and, and seeing just prolonged run he can go and how it's the best way to use him. I don't know that you want to introduce more unknown factors at this stage. I think that um, play it out, get a better feel for what you have, and then attack it from the offseason going forward. Speaking of Porzingis, how much do we think here, and, I, and I, we're going to be wrapping this up here. I, I want to end, though, on this because, you know, the reports were out that the Mavericks were shopping him uh, around the league and he was available. You know, frankly, I don't I don't believe that. Uh, I, I don't believe they're ready to give up on him yet. They were very happy to get him. They were very excited to, to make that deal. They knew his injury history. They knew it would take a little while for him to get over those things and make the adjustments and, and you know, to me, if you make that deal, this guy was going to be one of, if he wasn't going to be one of your top two, he was going to be one of your top three. Well, then you're, now you're trading away one of those guys. And so you're just back to square one again. And it's so difficult to make those kind of deals and make those kind of trades. I, I still think that Chris Porzingis is certainly could be a three. I, I think he's the kind of guy, frankly, who's going to play. You got to count on 65 games a year from him. And if you get that from him in their quality games, you should be happy with that. But it does mean that you probably need a, a two. You need you need a guy who's going to be the second best player on the team, and Porzingis is probably the third best because of that. And uh, w- what he does in the postseason, then that that's what you're really kind of hoping for at that point, uh, and, and not be a guy who has to carry you so much during the regular season. But do you think going forward that that Porzingis has a long term future in Dallas? Yeah, I do. Uh, I think he's such a unique skill set. Now, that's the other side of it. I, I think it because of that unique skill set, it limits and, and reframes the players you look at putting next to him and Doncic. But you, you recognize that and you build that team for different ways to play. And, and look, Carlisle has shown he's as adaptable in game and from game to game as any coach in this league. Maybe you can argue he adapts too much sometimes. And, and I think that's what you have here a little bit with this young team. I, I think that... Rick Carlisle is not as wedded to specific roles for players as many other coaches in the league are. Uh, So many coaches are on autopilot and the players like that, where it's like, okay, you're going to go in at the five minute mark of the second quarter and you're going to play until X time. You know, Carlisle changes that up more than most coaches, which I think is challenging for a younger team uh, and especially uh, a team with new players on it who haven't been in that system, which is where you are here. But he's shown that, that they adapt to it and he can make it work. But no, I, I think Porzingis is there. And, you know, a, a healthy Porzingis, I, I, ideally, yeah, I agree. If Porzingis is your third best player, you're competing for a championship basically every year. With Porzingis as your second best player, I think it's a little more spotty. I think you're a very good team, but I think everything has to go right for you and your role players have to really be dialed in and uh, maximize, you know, their roles in that specific year for you to advance. But if he's your second player, I think it's harder to compete year in and year out. If he's your third, oh my gosh, what a, because now suddenly when you talk about the third option, you're not necessarily talking about a necessity to win, but a luxury. And so you don't need them every night. And if you're a player who physically can't be there every night, that makes that uh, a little more problematic for a team. Yes, it does. So uh, speaking of problematic, uh, Evan Grant's going to remain in Arizona uh, until, uh, until they, 
the, the Rangers are coming back. We've talked about the Rangers. We're going to talk more next week about how they're doing, uh, how Ruki Odor is making the uh, transition to third base, which it seems to be going a little bit better than uh, anybody could have expected at this point. We'll see how that bears itself out. And other developments with the Rangers. We've talked about the Cowboys and free agency. We'll talk about that again next week. And that'll be a lot of fun to do that. So uh, until next week, we hope that everybody stays safe. And we'll check you next time.